Howdy. I'm Eric from Antioch, California. Hey, I'm Kevin from Victor, New York. I'm Luke from Seattle. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. In baseball, there's the fastball, the curveball, and for a select few... There's the knuckleball. In actuality, you're throwing it with your fingernails, uh, taking off all the spin that you can. One of my guests this week is R.A. Dickey. He's a pitcher for the New York Mets, and he's the only knuckleballer left in the big leagues. You know, I have thrown knuckleballs that you can actually read the writing on the baseball as it comes in. It's bullseye. This week, Mets pitcher R.A. Dickey talks about fighting his way through 10 years as a marginal professional baseball player before giving himself over to the uncontrollable but devastating knuckleball. Plus, find out why he has a bat named Fronting. Yes, that's the name of Beowulf's sword. We travel back to the early 60s on the streets of San Francisco where James P. Coyle and Mal Sharp convince a Navy man to rob a bank for them. All, as they say, in the interests of humor. And I'll tell you about a radio show that's not this one that you really ought to hear. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to offer us recommendations for things that are worth your time. This week, we are joined by Eric Adams, assistant TV editor, and Claire Zolke, contributor to the AV Club. Claire's also the proprietor of Zolke.com. Eric, Claire, how are you guys doing? Great, Jesse. How are you? Tremendous. We're going to talk about some all-time favorites. Claire, why, why don't we start with you? You're a big fan of the classic television franchise, Law & Order. Yes. I mean, I'd say there's at least three levels of Loving Law and Order, although I only watch the original. The original is the best. I can't speak to, to the SVU or, or criminal intent. Let's take them in order. First of all, what's the first level? The first level is just simply how easy to watch it is. Uh, you can drop in on any episode and not have to know what happened in the previous episode to understand what's going on. They're all self-contained. So you, even if you drop in into an episode halfway through, you can kind of guess what has happened already and what's going to happen. The second level is that the cases are actually pretty interesting. You can start an episode and not have any idea where it's going to go, even if you've seen it before. But then the third level is just the Law & Order universe, which is so small that any change in it becomes really noteworthy. So you can really get a lot of discussion going out of who was the best detective combo, and the answer is Lenny Briscoe and Ed Green. And you can talk about <laughs> who was the best assistant to Jack McCoy. I say Abby Carmichael, but I also accept Jamie Ross or Claire Kincaid. And every now and then they divulge the personal lives of the characters. Not too much, but when you do find out, you know, whose daughter is who or who is married to whomever, it gets really strangely interesting. So there's a tiny bit of soap opera involved. My favorite level level of law and order is the level where no matter what the case is, at some point they question someone who's stocking grocery shelves. Oh, yeah, exactly. I think that's what happens in New York. You're just so used to talking to detectives that, you know, you can't slow down for a second. Eric, let's talk about a very different type of police program, to say the very least. Police Squad, which is the legendary Zucker Abrams Zucker production that presaged Naked Gun. Did you actually watch this when it was on television? 
Uh, I wasn't even born when this was on television. <laughs> it, uh, it aired during the spring and the summer of 1982, which was a, a full three years before my tiny baby body was uh, <laughs> shot out into the world. There's six episodes. Uh, you can watch the whole thing in a three-hour sitting. So whereas... Uh, the Law & Order franchise currently has 30 seasons of programming that you can watch on Netflix. You can get the entirety of Police Squad finished in in a relaxing evening <laughs> or a lazy Saturday afternoon. So tell me a little bit about the show itself. Is it reflective of the tone of the Naked Gun movies? A- absolutely. You know, uh, Police Squad is, is pitched in, in the Zucker Abrams Zucker uh, filmography. It's between Airplane and... And their spy spoof, Top Secret, it's much more similar to Airplane, where everything is played completely straight. There'd been a recent wave of gorgeous fashion models found naked and unconscious in laundromats on the west side. Unfortunately, I was assigned to investigate holdups of neighborhood credit unions. Well, when I first heard the shot, and as I turned, Jim fell. He's a teller, Frank. But Jim fell's a teller? No, Jim Johnson. Who's Jim Fell? He's the auditor, Frank. Okay. We think we know how he did it. Oh, how he couldn't have done it. He hasn't been in for weeks. It's funny that you bring up that it's a different kind of police show from Law & Order because in the general sense, it's not. It's a, a regular police procedural show that sort of follows the format of the shows that laid the groundwork for Law & Order, uh, like The Streets of San Francisco or M Squad or Adam-12, these very boring, formulaic uh, <laughs> cop shows from the 60s and 70s. And what they do is they use those cop shows as sort of a, a framework to do their own sort of Marx Brothers-style splatter painting. So it's it's just joke, 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 joke. Do you have a particular favorite spectacularly stupid joke from this television program? <laughs> um, there's one episode where Leslie Nielsen's character, Frank Drebin, is posing as a locksmith. And in the course of the investigation, he eventually confronts the bad guy, the culprit, in his, like, secret lair office. Who are you, and how did you get in here? I'm the locksmith. And I'm the locksmith. <laughs> he, he just commits to the material so well and has such a, a faith in these stupid little lines and these stupid little situations that the Zaz team is running him through that the comedy just sings. Eric Adams recommends Police Squad, which you can find on DVD, starring the hilarious Leslie Nielsen. Claire Zolke recommends Law & Order on DVD now and basically on every television network and streaming service, uh, taking up roughly 25% of the world's television time. Eric Adams, assistant TV editor of the AV Club. Claire Zolke, a contributor to the AV Club and proprietor of Zolke.com. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you sign a professional baseball contract when you're 21, you usually know whether you've made it within four or five years. You're either busting into the big leagues or headed back home to finish college or maybe work in sales. Not so for R.A. Dickey. He played his first pro season at 22, and his last year with significant time in the majors was 2010, when he was 35. At one point, he realized he'd spent seven years in Oklahoma City. People joke that he should run for mayor, but he just wanted to get called up to the Rangers. Today, at 37, 
He's, if not quite a star, then at least a comfortable major leaguer with the New York Mets. In his 16 years of professional baseball, he found out he was a freak of nature with no ulnar collateral ligament, had his career end and be resurrected by a trick pitch, the knuckleball. He nearly died. He thought about suicide, and he saved his marriage by coming to terms with a childhood filled with horrible traumas. And because he's now a knuckleballer, even after 16 years of pro baseball, He's just getting started. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. R.A., uh, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, so let's first talk about uh, knuckleballs. Um, where did you first learn to throw the knuckleball? Well, I learned to throw the knuckleball first when I was a small boy, um, my grandfather showed me the grip when I was probably eight or nine years old, and and from then on, I felt like it was uh, you know a, a pitch that I could throw to my to my buddy in the backyard and try to hit him in the knee with it. Uh, and from there, I just always kept playing around with it for years and years and years until uh, eventually, I, it became a pretty good knuckleball, and I always kind of used it sporadically. Even when I pitched conventionally, when I was not a full-time knuckleballer, I would still use the knuckleball uh, two or three times a game. Um, and so that's when I first learned, probably when I was eight or nine years old. I think uh, if someone doesn't really follow baseball, I think they've probably got a reasonable idea of what a fastball is because it's a you know a ball that's fast and what a curveball is because it's a ball that curves. Um, but... I, I think that someone who isn't a baseball fan might not even know what a knuckleball is. Sure. Um, maybe you could describe a, describe it a little bit because it really is so distinctive from anything else that uh, uh, you know a, a high level professional baseball pitcher throws. Right, and in the history of the game, there have probably only been. Uh, 70 knuckleballers, I think 60 or 70 knuckleballers in the whole history of baseball. Presently, um, I'm the only one left. So to throw a knuckleball, um, it's it's quite different because every other pitch that a conventional f pitcher throws in his arsenal uh, is meant to impart a, a type of spin onto the baseball in order to manipulate the break or to keep it true and, and straight. Um, but a knuckleball is antithetical to that in that you're trying to you're trying to take spin completely off the baseball. Uh, I do it by by digging. You know, in the misnomer is it's called a knuckleball, and it's not called a knuckleball because you put your knuckles on the baseball. It's called a knuckleball because you take your fingernails on your pointer finger and your middle finger, and you dig them into the leather of the baseball behind the seam, and you can see the knuckles sticking up, and that's why it is given the name of knuckleball. It's because those knuckles are visible when you're throwing the ball sticking straight up off the baseball. Uh, but the but the um, the misconception is that you throw you actually throw it with the knuckles. You, in actuality, you're throwing it with your fingernails. Um, when that works, what happens? Well, you know, I have thrown. Uh, knuckleballs that you can actually read the writing on the baseball as it comes in, <laughs> and and if that's happening, it's a very to to use uh, Gary Sheffield, who is a um, an all a perennial all star for a long time from a multitude of teams. He said it looks spooky, and it can it can uh, it comes in there uh, darting uh, several different directions before it 
it gets to the catcher's mitt. So by the time I release the ball out of my hand and it travels to the catcher's mitt, it may break four different directions before it ever gets there because those seams, um, the ball has been thrown in a fashion where those seams are trying to, they're, they're, they're uh, being manipulated by that by the wind resistance against it created by the velocity of the baseball as well as the humidity that's in the air. And those seams are really fighting against one one another to try to get to the front of the baseball. And that creates a a very chaotic movement and one that traditionally is hard to control, which is why you don't see a lot of knuckleballers in the big leagues is because it's a real difficult pitch to try to to hone. So, I, I mean, it is... You know, and it's it's hard. It's hard to do. You know, I hold the record for most wild pitches in an inning, um, and that comes with the territory when you throw a knuckleball. Another key difference between a knuckleball pitcher and most, at least, contemporary Major League Baseball pitchers is that most pitchers who step out onto the mound are throwing something like as hard as they can. I mean, they may be able to muscle up an extra 5% and get an extra 2 miles an hour on their fastball in certain situations. But for the most part, you know, when they, when they, step, when they step onto the rubber, they're, they're giving it their all. Um, and when a knuckleball pitcher throws as hard as he can, he is in danger of losing the feel on on that pitch and thus he has to he has to throw very differently than he's been sort of trained to for most of his life yeah you know it's uh i had to when i when i switched from being a conventional pitcher to being a full-time knuckleball pitcher i had to unlearn what i had learned as a conventional pitcher and relearn a mechanic that could produce a ball that doesn't spin and half of the battle is doing exactly what you said. It's it's kind of surrendering to the fact that you're never going to be who you were as a conventional pitcher. You're never going to be the guy that threw, throws in the mid-90s again. And um, the knuckleball works best when you're operating at about 75% capacity. So I'm out there basically just trying to get a, you know, feel like I'm throwing a good game of catch with my, with my, with my buddy. You know, I don't think of it in terms of, oh, God, i got to throw this one, you know, super hard or this one. You know, it's it's much more organic. It's much m- more of a, a pitch that has to do with, with grip and release point, not necessarily velocity. So in, uh, the thing that makes a knuckleball tough to hit for a hitter is that they cannot ever predict which way the ball is going to break, uh, whereas other pitches – they can read the spin of the baseball. They're so good. They can read the spin of the baseball and predict where it's going to be and get the barrel of the bat to the ball in that place. Well, with a knuckleball, you know, if I release it, if I don't know where it's going, you better believe the hitter doesn't know where it's going. So that's that's the beauty and the curse all in one in the pitch. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.A. Dickey, is a pitcher for the New York Mets. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, authenticity, and the perfect knuckleball. You describe college recruiters, even when you were um, young in high school, saying that, you know, that your defining characteristic as a pitcher was that you were a, that you were a fighter, that, you know, even though you weren't 
the hardest throwing kid or a kid with um, what they call an out pitch, which is to say a dominant pitch that you, you could throw to strike people out, right. that you were uncowed by adversity? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that was something that other people recognized in me that I kind of uh, embraced as part of my identity as I grew up. And I think the foundations of that were, were laid from uh, a childhood of, of having to deal with some of the adversities that I had to deal with. Uh, and I, I, th- I guess one of the good things that came out of that, uh, of you know, my experiences with sexual abuse and, and uh, coming from a divorced family, I think you find ways to survive. And um, that's, that's what I did. You know, I would, I would, I had this kind of never give up mentality simply because I couldn't afford to. I felt like um, I felt like I had to do it harder and better than everybody else if I wanted to survive. And so that's what I tried to do. When you were in high school, you made a, a, an odd habit of um, sleeping in a just a broad variety of places that weren't your house <laughs> that's a nice way to say it thank you i'm i wonder i wonder if you could describe them i mean some of them were sure. you know the homes of uh friends and teammates sure um but some of them <laughs> involved breaking and entering yeah you know and, and i i got I, I you know some of that i really i really regret obviously but you know as a kid again speaking of those survival instincts you know i i i I grew up um, in a different place than I went to school. I grew up uh, in a place called Antioch, ten, uh, Nashville, the suburb of Nashville, and I went to school in a, a more fluent place um, called Green Hills. And and my school was in Green Hills, but I grew up kind of on the other side of the track. So when I when I went to my old boys school at MBA, um, it was a little bit of ways away from where I lived. So. Oftentimes, I would get in the practice of of going to the library, the school library, and looking through the classifieds to find streets that were close to MBA that were for rent. And then I would kind of do a drive-by and, and find um, vacant houses. And I would always have a sleeping bag and pillow in my trunk of my car. And um, if I didn't sleep in the car or with friends, I would, I would I'd find a, a vacant house. And usually, Nashville's a, a nice southern uh, place and most of the time people are real trusting and, and there was always usually a key under a flower pot or a mat or somewhere. I rarely had to to try to you know force my way in through a window or anything. I usually found a key, believe it or not. And, and I would I'd uh, unroll the sleeping bag and sleep in those vacant houses. Sometimes they would have furniture in them. Sometimes they wouldn't. I usually would shy away with the ones with furniture in them because I felt like those were more likely to. Uh, invite people to come visit them or look at them, uh, and I would I would go there late and get up early so no one ever saw me. And I never got caught, but you know that was a situation where I just I didn't want to go home at the time. I had moved in with my father, and we we have stuff in common. We didn't have a lot in common uh, during that time, and and it was just a real lonely place. And I felt like at least there it was a loneliness of my choosing. You know, I didn't. I wasn't reminded of how lonely I was. I could, I could at least control that. I could control where I slept. If I wanted to sleep in a vacant house, great. If I wanted to sleep in my car, that was up to me. Uh, but at least I could control it. 
After a break, knuckleballer R.A. Dickey discusses the day that he was offered over $800,000 to sign his first pro contract, then had that offer taken away. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Have a favorite Bullseye segment? It's easy to share it with your friends. You can find links to our page on SoundCloud at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is R.A. Dickey, a pitcher for the New York Mets. He had a long, hard road to the major leagues, at one point playing seven years in AAA Oklahoma City. He was personally lost and professionally flailing until he perfected his signature pitch, the knuckleball. You write in the book about going to your first Fellowship of Christian Athletes meetings when you're in high school. Um, and you chose a word that I was really struck by, which was that you found some and were looking for some peace. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily always, I mean, the thing that people are the the specific thing that people are looking for in their relationship with God. Um, I mean, it's something that many are, but, um, sure. You know, for someone who at that time in your life, you know, you were moving from place to place and, you know, trying to avoid your home and, and dealing with a lot of things by, essentially either compartmentalizing or mm -hmm. fighting, you know, and being a great fighter, you know, in athletic competition. Um, peace is a very different thing. And it seems like much of your growing up as, as an adult has been about trying to get to a place where you can have some peace. Uh, I would agree. You know, I think, uh, you know, the, the use of that word, um, kind of, kind of got a genesis for me because I always felt like I was running from something whether it was myself or the pain of a, a broken past or um, people who I didn't believe could identify with who I was. or There were a lot of things I was always running from. And I always felt out of breath uh, figuratively. You know, I was always gasping for air. And, you know, that word peace just means to me that I was, I found a place I could catch my breath. And my faith has always been that place for me. Uh, thankfully, you know, and, uh, and that's that's kind of where it originates, uh, you know. Is it's just that that feeling of of being able to catch my breath um, and see things more clearly, um, because, like I said, it was it's difficult always running, always looking over your shoulder, feeling like the next trauma is around the corner, and I was, you know, I got and look, you know, I. I kind of got into my faith in seventh grade, eighth grade, but um, it wasn't until I was 
32 years old where I really felt like uh, I was given the gift of, of being freed from a, from a real uh, tough past. You were, um, you were a, a very successful high school and college pitcher and were drafted in the first round, in the middle of the first round, which um, normally means a very significant signing bonus for a baseball player. This is after your junior year of college, right. and you were offered a you were offered a bonus of about half a million dollars, if I remember correctly. It's like eight ten, eight hundred and ten thousand. Oh wow, that's more than I remembered. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's no joke. So, um, tell me tell me about what happened a- after you um, went to the Texas Rangers general manager's office and and sat down there with your agent and they told you what their offer was going to be. Yeah, well, you know, we had a, I had pitched in the nineteen ninety six Olympic Games. We'd won the bronze medal, and I was I had kind of uh, we negotiated through the Olympics and finally settled on the eight hundred and ten thousand dollars as a signing bonus. I was the 18th pick overall in the in the June amateur draft that year and that was in 1996 and so we had agreed in principle to that figure and I was going to fly down after the Olympics and sign my contract throughout the first pitch meet Nolan Ryan I was drafted by the Texas Rangers so I went down there and did my physical which all first rounders really have to do and uh, they had they put me through a test called the valgus stress test and it's where you you put your arm in this apparatus and they apply some pressure from the back and then they take a picture, an x-ray from the top. And I'd never been a hurt I'd never been hurt a day in my life, never missed a game, never missed a practice. And so I hadn't you know, I had nothing to hide. And so I left that doctor's office thinking everything was okay. And when I got to to um, Doug Melvin's office, he called my agent inside without me and asked me to wait up wait out on the on the balcony of the office and so I did and my agent came and got me and I sat down across from Doug Melvin he said we think there's something wrong with you we think there's something wrong with your arm and we're, we're retracting our offer and instead of the $810,000 we don't know if we even want to sign you and we'd like for you to go get a second opinion now at that point you know I was I just I could hardly breathe you know I imagine winning the lottery and losing the ticket you know I mean you just you don't know what's just happened. And so I left that meeting very distraught, not knowing what to do. I had a second opinion the next morning with Dr. James Andrews in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the most um, renowned orthopedic surgeons in the in the country. And he did all the same tests and said, let's take an MRI. I think you're fine. And I'll tell the Rangers that you're fine. But let's take an MRI just to make sure they're going to make you take one anyway. So when I did that, the results came back that I didn't have the existence of an ulnar collateral ligament in my right elbow at all. I shouldn't be able to to turn a key or uh, a doorknob without feeling some discomfort, according to the MRI that was discovered. And so he didn't believe it. He made me go down and take another MRI, and they called the chief radiologist out of his home to read it. And sure enough, no ulnar collateral ligament, which is the Tommy John ligament. And that ligament basically stabilizes the elbow joint so that it, it doesn't pop out of socket. I didn't have it. And so obviously the Rangers saw that as uh, damaged goods. I tried to argue that, hey, I'm not going to have to have surgery to replace it anytime. I should get more money. But that, that didn't really fly. And uh, 
they eventually offered me $75,000, take it or leave it. And I, I prayed about it and talked to my wife about it now, who was my girlfriend at the time. And she said, um, you know, she encouraged me to take it and follow my dream. And so I did. I took it and, and accepted a contract that was, what, $735,000 less than what I thought I was going to get. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.A. Dickey, is a pitcher for the New York Mets. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. It's about how he became a knuckleball pitcher and turned his life and career around. You were in the minor leagues for a long time. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of a way to put that like really uh, uh, kindly. No, it's all right. It is what it is, you know. Yeah, I mean, you you were you were in the minor leagues as a conventional pitcher for longer than most, and I think the reason is that you were um, that you were a, about as good as a minor league pitcher can be, um, without being good enough to be good enough to stick in the major leagues. Um, when you were 27 and 26 and 28 years old um, and you were looking around the AAA clubhouse and seeing guys that were younger than you quitting, um, how did you feel about staying a professional baseball player? I mean... You, so much of your identity was tied up in being a fighter. Yeah. But you also, by that time, had a family and, you know, you're obviously a smart and capable guy who who could get a real-life job if, if he needed to, you know? Well, um, you know, it's, it's tough. Uh, I think one of the things I was always constantly balancing was what is my responsibility uh, to my family? Um, because you're you're not you're making you know twelve hundred thirteen hundred you know maybe two thousand dollars a month for the months that you're playing, which are you know it's about five and a half months as a minor leaguer. You're only making that money for the months that you play. I mean, it can be a a tough lifestyle uh, as a minor leaguer, as a career minor leaguer, which I was for a lot of my career. And besides that, your your wife. And your family have their lives compromised. I mean, oh, you, yeah. you write yeah. you write in the book about your your wife who yeah. you know graduated from college at the top of her class and essentially had to work retail and retail like jobs just because what other job can you get when you sort of breeze into town and who knows when you might leave? Right. No, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, I uh, the beginning of my career, I asked her to put everything on hold and. You know, um, in order for me to 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 pursue what I was going to pursue is trying to get to the major leagues, and she worked everything from the limited retail to to uh, teaching uh, senior citizens water aerobics to uh, borders check borders books check out. I mean, she did it all simply just to uh, follow me around in an effort to support me in what I wanted to do, and so you know. And, and and this is the, the the irony, not the irony, but the the beauty 
and the and the poetry in it is that she never I, I can I don't know if I can ever remember her saying a resentful word because of it. Like she gladly did it, you know, and she and, it, and that was one of the reasons to your first point, to your first question about seeing younger people quit. My wife wouldn't let me quit. Um, she didn't want me to have a singular regret. And if it weren't for her, uh, I would have never pursued it longer than I did, as long as I did. Uh, she just, she would not let me. And, and as much of a fighter and a survivor as I am, uh, you know, she really encouraged me to, to hang in there. And a lot of times I wanted to give it up. Even in the darkest places, uh, you know, she was sitting there saying, you're going to regret it if you if you quit. And uh, so I kept going, uh, despite how hard it was. You made it to the major league several times um, in your late 20s. Um, and you didn't distinguish yourself. Um, and... I wonder what changed in your life that that made you think that a different approach was necessary mm. because your life really inflected at 30 and 31 and yeah well I think uh a lot of it was just one of the things I felt like I was given as a gift as a human being was and we're all given different gifts in this world, you know. I think one of mine was, um, at least athletically, um, a measure of being, of self-awareness. And I, uh, I knew that I was mediocre as a as a major league baseball player. Uh, like you said, I, I had done well as a minor leaguer, but when I got to the big leagues, there were just I didn't have the equipment to be able to consistently perform well. I was very mediocre by my own admission. And I saw the writing on the wall in 2005. My velocity had dropped a little bit. And I just I, I didn't have what I needed to consistently get big league hitters out. And that's when I, I realized that if I wanted to keep going, I had to come up with something that I could, a weapon, if you will, that could get big league hitters out consistently. Oral Hershiser was my pitching coach at the time. He was a longtime Dodger great. And Buck Showalter was my manager for the Texas Rangers in 2005. And they confronted me and said, "Hey, we just you're not you're not getting it done." And I said, "You know what? You're right. I'm not." They said, "But we know you have a pretty good knuckleball. Why don't you try to go to the knuckleball full time, and we'll give you the latitude to be able to do that by sending you back to AAA and letting you try to try to figure it out." And so because I was self-aware and knew that I didn't have much to offer as a conventional pitcher anymore. I embraced that, went down to AAA, and began my journey as a knuckleballer. I mean, what's crazy about that is that what's so remarkable about the knuckleball is that at the time that anyone else's physical skills are ending— Diminishing to the point where, you know, unless they're starting out at the top of the pile, you know, all the all the marginal all the marginal guys at the age of 30 are starting to stop being marginal and start being whatever's one step below marginal. (laughs) You 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 sort of pick this side path 
where knuckleball is the only kind of is the only kind of professional baseball player where where 30 is young. I mean, maybe left-handed situational relief pitcher. Okay, yeah. But besides that. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> like you you got to start over at 30, but on the other hand, you have to start over. Yeah, you're right. Uh it is kind of the only the only niche that you can kind of fall into where you can have some real success in your your mid-30s to late 30s or you know, 33 or 34. I really probably um I really started to get it uh, when I was 33 or 34 years old for the first time. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been a knuckleballer for about two years when I finally got some things started to click. Uh, but, yeah, it, you know, the knuckleball gives you that. It gives you that when you decide that you're going to embrace it and you have people who will support you in that. And that you have to have people who will support you, you know, the risk that, to be a knuckleballer because basically you're saying when you become a knuckleballer, what you are saying uh, is I am not good enough. And if I want to make it, I've got to do this or I'm going home. And that's a tough place to be. Uh, It's a pitch of desperation. Most people turn to the knuckleball because they can't do what they once did well anymore. Uh, They have to come up with something else. And uh, that's what I did. Uh, And thankfully I had people who poured into me in a way uh, that really enabled me to kind of get the foundations I needed to learn it well. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.A. Dickey, is a starting pitcher for the New York Mets. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. You know, it, it wasn't just committing yourself to the knuckleball that got you to the place where you could become a successful professional knuckleball pitcher. Um, your marriage fell apart to the point where you and your wife were separated and living in different houses. Um, at, at one point, you tried to swim across the Missouri River on a dare that no one dared you to do. <laughs> on a self-dare. <laughs> yeah. Um it's sort of like sort of like that scene in Cool Hand Luke about how many eggs he can yeah, eat only I remember this only it's life threatening and also you almost died. Yeah. Um and it seems like the thing that you didn't have was the the ability to let go of the fighting and get yourself to the peace. Right. Right. No, that's a that's a, a good insight. I think <clears throat> you know, I am I am I am a man of uh a myriad of mistakes. You know, uh, from everything from you know raging at my family after a bad outing or or um, you know, not doing relationship well with my friends or you know, an act of infidelity on my wife or you know, I, I've made so many mistakes, so many, and I, I'll continue to make mistakes. Uh, you know, my decision making has not always been sound, that's for sure. Uh, but I think one of the things that I have realized uh, is that, you know, the journey is never over. You know, you never get to the place where you've arrived. I've certainly 
have not and will not. But because I do life differently than I've, I've done it in the past through a lot of help, whether it's been a uh, some of my close friends, my wife, a therapist, you know, I haven't gotten a chance to do life differently. Uh, and I'm trying to embrace that, and that's where some of the peace comes in, you know. I think, to speak directly to your point, uh, there was an element of my life that I, I uh, a lot of elements of my life, I would say, that I really worked hard to control. And once I learned uh, what it was like to surrender, uh, the peace started to come. More peace started to come. Uh, realizing that I'd I wasn't good enough, you know, I wasn't, I couldn't be perfect enough and that, and let that be okay. Like surrender that, you know, I was going to make mistakes as a husband, as a father, as a pitcher, as a friend, it was okay. You know, like surrendering that and not trying to control it, uh, really did a lot for, for me finding some peace. It seems like that's the, that's in a lot of ways the same as throwing the knuckleball, this pitch where you almost have to surrender to it you know you have to throw it thousands and thousands and thousands of times and you can't control it you can only kind of put it out there it's a butterfly not a bullet as i i yeah. think it was charlie huff that said that one yeah um no that's that's so true i, I think for me and one of the things i talk about in, in my book is you know the parallel i mean my transcendence as a knuckleball pitcher in the major leagues directly coincided with my with my growth as a human being and learning what it was like to surrender and learning what it was like to trust you know being a a person who came from the place I came from with the things that had happened in my past it was difficult to trust I had to learn to trust again and once I once I learned to trust a little bit once I learned to surrender and once I learned to tell the truth more and and be open with who I really was, regardless of what people may think. And all those things simultaneously occurred along the lines of me risking becoming a knuckleballer and learning what it was like uh, to do that well. I have one last thing to ask you about RA. And I don't know if you know this, but you've become a sort of hero god to a certain set of baseball nerds. Um, when and it happened when they found out that you had started naming your bats after uh, fantasy characters and <laughs> elements from legendary fantasy tales. Right. Um, I know you had a bat named after a character from Beowulf. Yeah. Um, you had a bat named after a sword from The Hobbit. Um, have you have you maintained this practice? <laughs> Perhaps you could clue us into your current bat's names. Sure. You know, that that's uh I just like to have fun with it, you know. My, if <laughs> if the bats are symbolic of swords, you know, uh then I, why not name them, you know? Why not give them their own personality? So oftentimes, for instance, uh, you know, Harunting is still around uh from Beowulf. Oh, excellent. That's the that's the Beowulf. Yeah, that's bat. the Beowulf sword. He's still around. And so I'll tell the bat boy, go get me Harunting because on the end, on the knobs <laughs> On the knobs, everybody uh, everybody writes their number. Well, in lieu of my number, uh, I have the name of my bat. And so <laughs> Runting and Sting and I have a few others. Um, but those are my, my two go-to bats. 
I'll go get those guys and, 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 and go up to the plate with those guys. But yeah, you know, it's just something that, you know, keeps me engaged and, and I, I like doing. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm not sure how to ask this, R.A. I mean, look, I'm on board for this. There's no doubt about that. What I'm wondering is, I guess, what other professional baseball players think about the fact that you have named your bats after <laughs> swords from Beowulf. Oh, I don't know. And, you know, I'm thankful I'm at the place where I'm, I'm kind of apathetic to it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a time when I would have cared, but right now I, I just don't. <laughs> Well, um, R.A., I I sure appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for uh, uh, sharing your time with us. No, I appreciate the dialogue. It's been fun. Thanks. R.A. Dickey is an all-star starting pitcher for the New York Mets. His memoir is called Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. After a break, we'll travel back to the streets of early 1960s San Francisco, where James Coyle and Mal Sharp convince a Navy man to rob a bank. All, as they put it, in the interests of humor. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. The Memory Palace is a remarkable podcast about history. To imagine it, start by wiping away whatever comes to mind when you hear a podcast about history. Replace it with small, beautiful, fascinating stories. Things you'd never imagine and never expect. A sense of awe and wonder. Something amazing. That's The Memory Palace, the newest podcast in the MaximumFun.org family. Find it free in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher or online at MaximumFun.org. That's The Memory Palace the newest podcast in the Maximum Fun family. In the early 1960s, James P. Coyle and Mal Sharp roamed the streets of San Francisco, microphone in hand, roping strangers into bizarre schemes and surreal stunts. Originally recorded for KGO Radio and Warner Brothers Records, their archives have been preserved and compiled into a recent box set. These two men are imposters. On this actual archival recording, Coyle and Sharp approach a military man near Union Square in San Francisco. We've just stopped a gentleman. A young man is in the Navy. Could we have your name, please? Lewis. Lewis, I'd like you to meet James P. Coyle. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you. Now, Lewis, Mr. Coyle is going to tell you very briefly about a film he's working on here in the city. And uh, after he finishes, if you want to discuss any aspect of it, Uh, feel free. I really would. Okay, fine. Mr. Coyle, would you tell us about the film? Very good. The name of the film is Daring But Dead. The idea is very simply... Uh, it centers around a bank robbery, which takes place in a city. We hope to approach it in a unique way, and we're actually going to film it in a bank. Do you understand the nature of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I come from Philadelphia. I'd like, to, I'd like to know it. I really would. Right, I mean, right. Everybody in the bank will be actors. Uh, but we're going to try and get the main role, in other words, the protagonist of this film. We're going to use a person without dramatic background. Would you yourself be interested in... Uh, giving a crack at that role. There's no money involved, but there's a possibility for fame. Yes, I really would. I mean, I think it'd be a good film. I really do. I honestly do. The idea is you are to uh, go in the bank, ask for $11,000, 
you can use some type of a weapon or not. And uh, we are actually, uh, I've chosen Mr. Sharp from the radio station and myself are playing two of the other roles in the film. We'll be sitting out in a car outside the bank. Would you be willing to give it a try? I would be, because I'm a gunner's mate in the Navy and I know I could do it. I mean, I just walk in, I'd hold it up. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, uh, the man that's never committed a crime before is the one that can do it. Right, that's exactly. true. I could do it. I mean, I can get hold of a machine gun. I can get hold of any kind of weapon you want. Would you be willing? We're doing some filming this afternoon. Would you be willing to try it? Yes, I would. Fine. We'll go up to a bank here. Uh, would you be able to get a hold of a weapon this afternoon? Yeah, I would. You won't see the cameras. We'll just go in and it'll look like a regular bank robbery. No cameras, nothing. That's right. I would. I would. I'd go in there. And no. you'd come out with the money and meet us in the right. car. That's right. All right. Let's go. Okay. Fine. What's That's wrong? a good plan. What do you mean, what's wrong? Well, you're going to go with us? Yeah, I'll go with you. What do you mean? Go what with are you going to do? I don't hold up a bank. Okay, let's go. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Come on. Come on. What do you mean, come on? We're going to do it now. You've agreed to hold the bank up, right? What's wrong? What do you mean, what's wrong? You guys actually want to hold up a bank right now, don't right. you? I know you do. You guys got a gun? No. No. You were going to have the gun. You would be the guy who would go in the bank. What kind of guys are you? We're just out to make a buck, and if we can use a guy that's got no criminal really experience. Are, huh? Yeah. You guys are all right. Which bank you not yet? The bank right down on the corner. You guys just walk in there, huh? With you the walk you. in. Me. You walk in. We wait outside in the car. You guys got a good scheme here. You know, we've discussed it with you pretty openly. You know the score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get you to go in the bank. You take the risk. We sit out in the car. We get the money. If you're caught, you know, you don't even know who we are. So we have no past association with you. That's right. See, if I get shot by the cop, you guys don't know nothing. Yeah, right. You're we just drive right. off. You're I'm lying a, there in the. I'm a stoolie, right? You're a pigeon. Yeah, you're a pigeon. Yeah, yeah. You're lying on the steps of the bank, riddled with bullets, and we're driving across the bridge. Yeah, I'd want one of you guys with me. Where? In the bank. Can we explain something to you? Yeah, yeah. You won't be angry with us? No, nah, no. Nah. This is all in the interest of humor. Let me say one thing. Yeah, go right ahead. You two guys, with a scheme like that, just stopping a guy on the street with a policeman right next to me. Yeah. You could actually pull off a job like that. Sure you you could. could. Three men. Right. I'm serious. The broadcasting duo Jim Coyle and Mal Sharp pulled pranks on unsuspecting citizens on the streets of San Francisco in the early 1960s. You can find more of their work on the Coyle and Sharp podcast at MaximumFun.org. And a box set of their work called These Two Men Are Imposters is available now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. David Foster Wallace wrote an essay for The Atlantic called Host. It was a profile of an AM talk show host named John Ziegler. Really, though, it was a profile of talk radio. What Wallace understood and wrote about was that talk radio isn't really about ideas. It's about feelings. The call-in show host's stock and trade is the incitement of emotion, rage, indignance, once in a while, pity or sympathy. The talk show host uses his direct and intimate line to the listener, the special quality of radio, to stir the pot, to turn the thermostat up and up and up so that you'll call in or at least not turn the dial. When you're a host like me, you get really in tune to that. 
I think that's part of why my public radio colleagues Terry Gross and Ira Glass are so into Howard Stern. My favorite master of that emotional thermostat, and yes, I'm going to use my radio show to recommend someone else's, is a guy named Tom Sharpling. What I love about Tom is that he's so fantastic at the emotional dramatics of the host, but at the same time, he's fantastic at satirizing them, too. And somehow his satire is more emotionally powerful than the source material, the stuff he's satirizing. It's quite a trick. Sharpling hosts a show called The Best Show on WFMU on the legendary Freeform station out of Jersey City, New Jersey. Once a week, he presides over what he calls three hours of mirth, music, and mayhem. It used to be all music back when he started it, until a friend of his, John Worster, had the idea to call in as the author of a fake rock book called Rock, Rot, and Rule. Worster is a real-life rocker. He's the drummer for the band Superchunk, among others. The idea was that this made-up author split all music into three categories, rock, rot, and rule, almost completely arbitrarily, I should say, which, of course, enraged the music-loving WFMU audience. Sharpling took calls as Worcester explained that Puff Daddy rules and that Bowie and Neil Young rot because they've made too many changes. WFMU, you're on the air with Ronald Thomas Clothel. Yeah, I'm just very confused about the concept of this book. Can you just, like, I, I get this book, I open it up, and there's paragraphs describing the bands and the rationale for why they rock. Like, what, you know, are there chapters? I mean, how is this, what's the deal? It's columns. It's columns. It's, there's columns, yeah. Okay. In other words, you just have a band name and then just, one of the three words, rock, rot, or rule. Exactly. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And uh, some photos, too. And why would somebody buy this book again? Just Pardon me? What was the reason why someone would buy this? The ultimate argument, Settler. The tape of the hour-long segment became a cult phenomenon, and eventually Worcester started calling into the show as a new character every week. And along the way, what was once a music show became a talk show. Worcester still calls in once a week, providing an unbilled glimpse into a fictional world the show's created called Newbridge, New Jersey. And all of this stuff is wonderful. What's magical to me, though, is the rest of the show, which in a lot of ways is like a regular call-in radio show. Topics, callers, music breaks, but always with the stakes a little higher than normal and the tone a little crazier than normal. Tom Sharpling cycles through emotions on the show. Sometimes he's openly despondent on the air, threatening to shut the show down. What's that? There are probably things you could do to get it out of your head. Yeah. Like move on from this show. Other stuff. I got other things in front of me. I got other opportunities. I don't need to be here. You know what? I could be sitting at home coloring in a coloring book. If I wanted to. Sometimes he's belligerent, battering callers. This is so unfunny. You're so unfunny. Your show's, your show's crap. Why do you just you hang up on people and then you bash them for 20 minutes? What do I do? You hang... <laughs> oh, that will never, ever get old. Sometimes he's sweet. 
children call in, actual children, eight, ten-year-olds, and he mentors them live on the air. What's your favorite movie, Ben? Dazed and Confused. What? What's going on there in that house? You gotta house? love stoner comedy. What's that? You gotta love stoner comedy. No, I gotta. You don't. You should be watching th- things like, uh... You should you, you you should be watching like uh, like Apple Dumpling Gang and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, right? Uh, Family know. Fair. Once in a while, someone will call into a talk segment to request a terrible song. Tom asks them to introduce it, give it a big fat ramp up, and then he drops the needle on this gem by Neil Diamond. Sharpling calls for vendettas. He harangues imagined enemies. He talks about his problems with a recording of a scratchy skipping record. And yet, somehow, through it all, it is abundantly clear that while all of it is a put-on, it's also all real. He is what he claims to be, Kid Jersey, the voice of the disenfranchised, a genuine sweetheart. On the best show, Sharpling takes us on the emotional roller coaster of the talk show, knowingly. He's mocking the form as he practices it, but he isn't distant from it. He's never arch. The mockery is more genuine than the hucksters that Tom's mocking. The game of the best show is usually trying to figure out who the real Tom is. And somehow, trying to guess who the real Tom is just brings you closer to the speaker, leaning into your radio, which is, after all, the whole goal of this thing that we do. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our interns are Lindsay Pavlis and Tom Pike. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. Special thanks to Roger Dominguez at Uptempo Studios for engineering the Miami side of our interview with Arlie Dickey. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.